Are we talking about Hugo de Jong by any chance? We are talking about Hugo de Jong. <laughs> Funny yeah. yeah. Who else? Yeah. It's Friday, January the 8th, 2021. Happy New Year, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Derf, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Dorp Ramp Tourist. Joining me today are Paul Peters, Master's Student in Civil Engineering and Capital Cake Destroyer, and the Doyen of Dutch News has joined us, riding in with her blue light bicycle escort, Robin Pasco. <laughs> ha ha. First of all, I have to say a, a, a big welcome to, to Robin, uh, who is... Uh, yeah, big welcome. Yes. Yeah. Well, welcome on the podcast. You did you did do an episode once, didn't you? With with Molly and with... Yeah, we did a, or we did the all-female podcast a while ago. Yeah, the kind of loose women podcast. Yeah, it was a bit yeah. odd because you couldn't tell who anybody was because we all sounded the same. But um. Well, Molly sounded <laughs> quite different because she well, always yeah, does. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I feel we've, we've kind of changed gear here. We, we've moved quite sharply from um, uh, from Molly to a, a more, I don't know, more kind of cultivated, more refined type of uh, broadcast. You know, I, I, I feel yeah. like we've moved up a level this year. 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> 2021 is already better than 2020, <laughs> indeed. I, yeah. I'm flattered, but Dutch News still doesn't make any money guys you know i mean <laughs> oh, well. um we gave this job title basically to give you an excuse to talk about uh, the, the the police blue lights on the bike so because you picked this out as your favorite story of the week so tell us about it well it's an experiment that's going on the dutch you know being the dutch like their bicycles the police like their bicycles too and uh, some one police officer came up with a bright idea of uh, trying out uh, blue lights, flashing blue lights on bikes to see if that meant people noticed them a bit better. They're a bit worried, I think, about getting knocked over if they were chasing somebody in the dark with their weak little bicycle lights that they have. Hmm. So they're experimenting in uh, six places with flashing blue lights to see if it makes people get out of the way and people realise that they are actually police officers and not just people pretending <laughs> to be so. Yeah. I. I should say that my husband and I were in town the other day and we came across a policeman cycling around with no lights on his bike, which my husband husband enjoyed pointing out to him that he didn't have lights. (laughs) (laughs) So what did did the policeman say back to him? Uh, Yeah, you're right. You're right. I'll get them fixed. (laughs) I've heard that excuse before somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's funny that. I'm always amazed that the, the, the police never wear helmets on their bikes either. You just that uh, you know, mm-hmm. I know Dutch people Don't in general they? are totally oh. averse to wearing helmets. And no, sometimes they do. You do sometimes see a yeah. policeman in a helmet, but often they don't. Yeah, um, no, it's true. Yeah. No, there is a uh, national aversion against uh, safety gear on uh, on uh, on bikes. Indeed, yeah. yeah. I, I tend to think this is the Dutch equivalent of the Second Amendment. You know, Americans will not uh, <laughs> tolerate any in- intervention with their restriction on their right to walk around with guns, and the Dutch similarly will not tolerate any restriction on their right to do whatever they like on a bicycle. Well, yeah, they go but, where they but, please, wearing anything they like, and if if you try and introduce any rules, and also because um, things like breathalyzing cyclists, uh, people get very very upset if the police stop them and breathalyze them when they're on the bike because they think they've got better things to do. Do they? Do they do that what? on the bike? They do. You do occasionally breathalyze. Yes, it does happen. Oh. Yeah, they do occasionally. Oh. Do ah. Oh, <laughs> 
So now you know. Uh, yeah, you can be fined ninety yeah. euros, I think, if you're caught drunk in charge of a bicycle. I think the fine is the oh. same. Yeah, the penalty is the same as for driving. But obviously, you don't lose your license because you don't need a license to ride a bike. But otherwise, it's this. Yeah, it, it it's the same offence on a bike as in a car. I I I, I never knew this. Yes. Maybe maybe these uh, these police bikes do need these flashing lights because I just don't recognize them. Uh, <laughs> if they want to stop me to have this uh, to 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 breathalyze me, so yeah, yes. it is. It's probably a good idea. But I I also think it is a good idea to anchor the right of for not wearing a helmet on a bike uh, in the Dutch constitution. I think that would be a, a great idea. I'd say I'm surprised it's not in there already, to be honest. No, but, yeah, um, indeed. But yeah, also, I'm curious to know if uh, when the police have the flashing blue lights on, do they have a siren or do they just have to shout Nina very loudly <laughs> as they're going along? <laughs> <laughs> There's no siren. And the idea isn't really to kind of tell you to get out of the way it's more to let you know that they're there apparently right. okay. um, so uh, it's uh yeah no that's yeah. safe this is one of those stories that we look at isn't it, when, we're, when we're working for Dutch News and you just look at that story and you think you know that the whole world is going to pick that up because anything to do with the Dutch and bicycles just feeds all those kind of stereotypes that people have about you know quaint Dutch people doing everything on two wheels um, okay, so uh, Paul moving on to you because it was your birthday this week so yes. I should say uh, uh, congratulations to Robin uh, because that's, Thank that's, you. that's the Congratulations. Dutch way. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, but yes, yeah, so your birthday's weekend. Uh, you, 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 uh, you expressed a wish to have um, a kind of cake in the shape of the Capitol building, which uh, was very topical. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was. My birthday was yesterday on Thursday, yeah. and on Wednesday evening there was, um, a, you know, the the U.S. Uh, uh, Congress was going to certify the uh, presidential election results. So I was just watching CNN. You know, usually this um, ceremony is just a just a. Um, yeah, it's a it's a formality. It just uh, goes by and uh, nobody notices it. But yeah, this time it was announced that uh, all these senators were going to uh, to uh, to to make an issue out of it. So I was watching CNN and all of a sudden the Capitol was stormed. Mm. I was like, okay, this is weird. What's going on? And then uh, I believe in Washington D.C. they um, they had a curfew. They announced a curfew at six p.m. Yeah. Um, so CNN had this countdown because you know it's CNN. They love their their countdown yeah. clocks. So they had this countdown clock. Uh, in the screen counting down to the curfew and then i noticed hey this is uh, the curfew is at 6 p.m in dc and here in the netherlands that is midnight uh and then it's my birthday so for a moment i thought they were <laughs> counting down to my birthday but that wasn't the, wasn't the case, wasn't the case uh. um so yeah the, the the storming of the of the u.s capital was sort of my uh, my birthday gift yes indeed yeah that, yeah yeah, a very kind of appropriate birthday present. So um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was very thoughtful of them. And, uh, I noted at the start of that day. Um, I think there was a, there was a note from because you always get a note of what the uh, the president's uh, got listed in his diary for that day. And every day since basically the election, Trump's diary has been empty. I think that yeah. um, there was a report that said I saw somewhere in the morning said uh, all it said was one line saying President Trump today will have many meetings and make many phone calls. <laughs> that was it. Didn't say he will incite a mob to storm the Capitol. <laughs> building, which I was disappointed. It wasn't part of his official agenda, <laughs> no. no. Yeah, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't his agenda. I think a Dutch no. politician probably would have, uh, you know, timetabled yeah, it. Definitely. You know. If Steph Block would would uh, would organize a coup, then yeah. he would definitely uh, put it on his uh, uh, on his official agenda. Yeah, just like when he was the designated survivor and he put his secret location in his official uh, <laughs> agenda as well. Oh, I've forgotten about that. Yeah, yeah. In the same way that um, when um, we're going to move this, up, we're going to pick this up a bit later in the um, in the podcast. But uh, w w w um, when they had the um, 
uh, the New Year party in Dandop, um, uh, that it, it was uh, because it was dressed up as a protest. It had an official start time, an official finish time, and that was the basis on which the mayor said it wasn't a party; it was a protest. So. <laughs> this was the this was there was the legal loophole to have yeah. this party. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Um, yeah. So the the that moves on to my job title of uh, Dandorp Ramp Tourist because uh, I live quite close to Dandorp. Um, so uh, I kind of go running on the beach and I skirt around the edge of it, not through Dandorp because I uh, I value my um my uh, my limbs. <laughs> but uh, yeah, otherwise <laughs> you have to wear bulletproof vests <laughs> and yeah, exactly. uh, also carry a fire extinguisher if you uh, enter uh, Dandorp. Yeah, and that yeah. weighs you down when you're running, so I try not to do that. But uh, last year certainly when I ran through Dandorp, you could really see the debris because that was when they had um, uh, the the unrest or the, or the riots because they'd had their um, their New Year. On beach bonfires cancelled um so i was literally sort of running through this war zone you know there, there was a burnt there's a kiosk um on the corner as you go up into the dunes um and that was just completely mm-hmm. burnt out and uh, yeah it was quite a sight so this year is much it, it was quieter actually i think a new year in downdorp so, uh, save for this uh, uh unofficial protest slash street party good one I'm amazed you go out running on uh, New Year's Day, Gordon. I'm impressed. Oh, yeah, well, you know, it's uh, a short run, I have to say, <laughs> before my legs give out. Before your legs were blown off from the fireworks. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, before I step you. on a mine or, or, or a discarded firework. Um, but, uh, uh, Paul, we're going to have the uh, Op-Pev, the very exciting moment later in the podcast. The Op-Pev of yes. the Year Awards will be, the winner will be revealed. Uh, but what is the, uh, what's the first Op-Pev you've picked out for us for this year? Yeah, to be fair, there was... Very little Ophef in the past uh, three weeks when we were away for the Christmas break, but as always, we managed to find, uh, still find one. Um, yeah, as you said, later we will reveal the winner of the uh, Ophef of the Year awards, but um, this week Ophef broke loose over a documentary about foreign trade minister and D66 leader Sigrid Kaag, um, which was broadcasted by uh, the public broadcaster. Uh, the documentary covered the past five years of Kaag. Uh, she first uh, worked for the UN as one of the their top uh, diplomats and she later became of course minister in uh, Mark Rutte's third cabinet um, also her decision to run for the D66 leadership elections uh, could be seen in the documentary and many criticized the documentary's date of airing because it was only three months before the general election so they many saw it as a sort of an hour-long campaign commercial for D66 and for Kaag. Kaag uh, always says that she wants to become the next uh, prime minister. Um, more ophef emerged when it became clear uh, producers of the documentary were former D66 campaign staffers and also the chair of the public broadcaster is a member of D66. This was pointed out by uh, PVV MP um, Martin Bosma, who uh, asked uh, uh, the minister questions about this. But others said the documentary was simply about uh, you know a woman with a very impressive career. Um, she, for example, led the UN operation to dismantle the Syrian chemical weapons arsenal in, what was it, 2016, I think. Um, and this wasn't uh, the first time a documentary about a Dutch politician led to Ophef. However, two years ago, public broadcasters refused to air a documentary about Geert Wilders. And also, four years ago, there was Ophef about a documentary about GroenLinks leader Jesse Klaver, which was broadcasted only a month before the previous general election. Yeah. Um, and did that lead to any kind of big rise in Koenigs's fortunes? I don't uh, recall it. No, did, not really. at all. No, no. no. these documentaries uh, are interested for people who are interested in this uh, in, in in these parties, yeah. which is a limited amount. Mm. So yeah, you can. You, uh, I I do find it interesting. Um, 
I, I agree that, you know, you have to be careful with documentaries about politicians, especially uh, in, 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 in a period before the general election. But yeah, it's still three months uh, away from it. And I don't think we are uh, fully in campaign mode right now no. in the Netherlands. Um, this documentary about Jesse Klaver was a month before the general election. Yeah, then it's already, yeah, a bit questionable, I think. But yeah, I, I watched the documentary and uh, yeah, it was mostly about her period as um, as this uh, UN diplomat. Mm. So yeah, it wasn't. No, I, d I didn't see it as a uh, as a campaign um, uh, uh, ad. Basically, no, no, no. yeah, I watched it as well, and I thought it was quite it was quite fortuitous for NOS. I guess they started making when they started making the documentaries. She was just a fairly obscure UN official. She had an important job, but one that not many people really knew about or um, yeah, didn't stir up much uh, uh, chatter on social media. Then all of a sudden, of course, in the course of making it, she became a disaster leader and it became a very different kind of documentary. I, I thought it was, quite, it was well made, but um, it's always interesting that the politician like Sigrid Kach stirs up so much you know, um, hatred and vitriol on Twitter uh, because of various um, attributes that she has such as you know being a woman in, in, uh, as uh, the head of a uh, political party and the fact that she's uh, she's married um to to, um, to a palestinian uh, politician as well and that, that most of the opf really seemed to be about that rather than anything that was actually in the documentary no no the opf was before the art documentary was actually aired so oh, nobody okay. knew what the contents were yeah. um uh, and now it, now it's aired and nobody yeah pays attention to it anymore yeah. that was also the case with the Yasser yes, Klaver documentary for example there's OPEF because it, they announced that it's going to be aired but you know when the documentary is there there's nothing interesting in it so the OPEF dies away yeah is it is it not the case though that in the Netherlands there are no rules really about pre-election airtime I mean in Britain it's very strict you can't you know interview people give them a solo appearance for for any old reason in the run-up to an election but here there don't seem to be any rules you can give as much airtime as you like to people without yeah. the, anybody going hang on a minute you've got to give fair access to everyone so maybe yeah. maybe that's there, there are no rules yeah. yeah maybe that's something that we should think about or they should think about here uh is to have a bit more control if you don't like it i mean martin bosmer of the pvv sounding off about a documentary about Siegfried gag is you know pretty standard uh op hef in yeah. that sense you know he it'd be odd if he hadn't said anything yeah but he can do something about it as you said he can just uh write a law proposal and uh and uh and make sure that uh, that these politicians don't get the, this amount of airtime he can he can do something about it yeah yeah no yeah. sure and there was no he didn't have any op when when there was a documentary made about Geert wilders but that's uh, but that's i think a he made he story. made that one himself didn't he wasn't that a Pay Vey Vey made documentary? Uh, no, um, that documentary was made by Vice, I believe, if I remember correctly. But uh, the Pay Vey Vey has a history of making movies, very bad movies <laughs> indeed, yeah. Yeah, and very bad uh, Christmas commercials as well. They're another very bad... Oh, yeah, uh, no, yeah. don't, no. <laughs> they do this every this year. One, the, terrible this, one this year was year. especially bad. <laughs> they had a Christmas uh, uh, video of Geert Wilders yeah. walking around with an axe. Yeah, he actually looked like... His, a, on, he looked like a like sort of backwoodsman murderer. You know, in in, yeah. in in a in a B movie horror B movie, or in the capital. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. As far as I yeah, I probably saw someone with the same outfit storming the capital at some point. 
This week, we've got the latest news on the lockdown, survey the congested field for the general election in March, and we'll tell you how Amsterdam is trying to attract a better class of tourists when visitors return. And live and exclusive, we'll bring you the results of the only poll that really mattered in 2020. Yes, it's the Dutch news podcast, Ophef of the Euro Awards. Indeed. Do you think we've trailed that enough now? Uh, the Opeth Theory Awards. <laughs> we mentioned it three times now. I think a fourth time is... Uh, we need a fourth time. Yeah, three keys to Scheepsrecht. What's what's Vierkeer? I don't know. Vierkeer uh, is... Um, yeah, overkill. And, yeah, overkill. Yeah. Yeah. It's looking increasingly likely that the national lockdown that's been in force since the middle of December will be extended beyond January the 19th. Ministers are due to announce next Tuesday whether schools and non-essential shops can reopen, but Prime Minister Mark Rutte told Parliament this week that the latest figures were not very hopeful. The RIVM, the public health agency, also said that the lockdown had not had any clear impact after three weeks. Sources in The Hague have told NOS that the most likely scenario is that the current rules be extended until the start of February, and there is a chance they could even be stepped up. So uh, tell us what exactly are the latest figures telling us? Uh, it's a very mixed picture, really. The, the, the last weekly report, because the RVM does these weekly reports every Tuesday, probably the most difficult set of uh, results to interpret because they were quite contradictory. So we saw the number of positive cases came down by about 16%. So we're sort of averaging around about just under 8,000 a day, uh, which is still a lot. Um, but that went hand in hand with a drop in the number of tests. So the positive test rate actually went up slightly to 13.7%. Um, hmm. Yeah, so we, but again, it's, it, it's still a, a very high number and uh, back up to levels like early December. Um, yeah. So that doesn't look so good. Um, then if you look at the figures in hospitals, um, fewer patients were admitted to hospital, about 10% drop, but the number in intensive care went up by about the same proportion. Um, and okay. the number of deaths reported last week went up by 38 to 621. So it's all very clear. And obviously you have this time lag where cases go down first and then hospital admissions and then ICUs and then deaths. So the so general picture looks as if things are leveling off or maybe starting to drop, but it's all happening much more slowly than the start of the, uh, than during the first lockdown um, when the numbers went down quite rapidly. Um, and really, I can't really see any other decision on Tuesday at that point, this point um, other than an extension of the lockdown. Yeah, yeah, these are not numbers that you expect when you have a country that's in full lockdown, yeah. right? So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's going, it, it does look like it is moving downwards, but it's just taking a long time and, you know, to, to, Very to, to long unlock time, at this yeah. point. The problem is if you unlock, as we saw at, uh, in, in November or the start of December, um, as soon as we unlocked, the cases started going up. And if they start going up from where we are now, we're in big trouble. Yeah. yeah. But do we need to be worried about the British variant? Uh, yes, yeah. This is a, we might have thought that uh, with Brexit, um, we, 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 we banished all the problems that came across from the other side of the North Sea, but far from it, because uh, this new strain has uh, come in that's supposed to be 50 to 74% more infectious than the current strains. Yeah. Um, it's not more deadly, but it does spread faster. And if it gets the upper hand, um, the calculations are it could push up the, uh, you know, the, the reproductive number R that we're all familiar with now um, above the level of one, which means uh, that, uh, that the virus would you, know, you expect cases to increase, and they could up, up, up by a factor of about 0.4, which would mean that uh, around uh, right now, the latest calculation we have for that number is uh, sort of about 0.9, so that would push it up to 1.3, which is what we had in October. And in October, of course, we saw cases going up quite fast. So that's um, not a good prospect. Uh, the RFM reckons at the moment around 1 to 5% of people who test positive have the British variant, uh, which translates to something between, well, anything really between 70 and 350 a day 
And bear in mind, hmm. it's only probably been here for around about a month. Um, so, yeah, that's not encouraging, especially when you look at the figures in the UK, which are running about um, yes, uh, 650,000 cases a day, which is nine times what we have here in a country that's four times as large. Um, some forecasts suggest the British variant could become the dominant strain by the end of February. Um, but on the other hand, it could be that uh, by locking down before it got hold, we might have nipped in the bud. If you look at figures from other countries like Belgium, you can see that their numbers have stayed low because they locked down earlier and uh, they, they got their cases down during November. So it's very uncertain. We don't really know what's happening. And again, it, 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 I think probably you're going to see the government's going to yeah, take a very cautious line and uh, keep the lockdown on until we've got a better idea of um, how things are likely to progress. Yeah. Um, so who else is uh, upset about their lockdown conditions? Uh, prisoners. Because uh, it turns prisoners. out... Yes, uh, pr- because inmates in jails are banned from wearing face masks, uh, even though the rest of us oh. are being told to wear them everywhere. Um, and in t- although governors say that it doesn't matter because in a prison you can uh, easily keep um, your social distance. <laughs> you can self-isolate you can self-isolate very easily. easily in, yeah, uh, or enforce yeah. There's actually been a series of outbreaks of coronavirus among prisoners. Uh, in Rouen-Mont at the moment, one third of inmates are quarantining at the moment in solitary confinement. And in Hirhochevad, oh. uh, up in Nordhaland, 19 prisoners are taking the governor to court. They hold him responsible for the spread of the virus in the jail, and they want the ban on masks to be lifted. Um, and as a kind of grim irony, back in March, the Justice Ministry announced that face masks uh, would be being made by prisoners in five Dutch jails. Oh. So they're making them, but they're not actually using them for their own protection. <laughs> oh, wow. This is... Uh, it's a very Dutch yeah. thing, though. You know, they, 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 yeah. they make the masks on the cheap, but uh, they don't actually you know, let the prisoners wear them. Do they have flashing lights on the face mask <laughs> or not? Maybe they should. Maybe the prison, yeah. the, the prison, um, the prison guards have flashing lights on their face masks to distinguish them. Yeah, yeah. And how how many of these are uh, these prisoners are in prison because they stormed uh, 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 the parliament? <laughs> it's on the Binnenhof. Uh, none at the yeah. moment, but uh, yeah, the, the, hmm. that could be the next development. I don't think so. Uh, the uh, the speaker of the Trader Camera has just said that she's going to check out the, to make sure that security at the Trader Camera is okay. Mm. So uh, I think Kadisha Arip would personally stand guard in front of the Trader Camera and to just, uh, just usher everyone away who wants to storm it. Yeah, and they and they would do it as well because she's yeah. kind of she's kind of strict. I think. Yeah, it would, yeah. It would work. That, that would certainly put me off storming the Binnenhof uh, in the unlikely event. I, I would be minded to do such a thing. I was also curious to know how many pans were there in the in the in the reflecting pool in front of the Capitol uh, building. <laughs> yeah. no, but the- because when Margrethe had his televised speech, uh, his his speech was uh, interrupted by these people with all these uh, pans, and they were making noise with them. Uh, and there was this amazing video of one of these protesters. There was he was making noise with his pan in front of the the Hofvijver, the pond in front of the Prime Minister's office, and his pan fell in the mm. in the water. Yeah, and uh, but that was also such a Dutch. <laughs> Uh, video it was amazing and then i don't know if we covered this on the podcast but the the hague museum the the the, the museum of the hague yes. they they sent a diver into the uh into the hofvijver to 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 uh to retrieve this pen because they wanted to put it on display in their museum <laughs> and and they didn't find it i mean yeah. <laughs> how is that possible i know yeah how, how deep is the hofvijver it's not like it's Loch Ness, 50 centimeters yeah, exactly. or something it's not <laughs> deep at all yeah Maybe maybe the uh, maybe the GGD uh, was in charge of the of the diving probably, uh, that, that, probably, operation. Yeah, I think probably a Hugo de Jonge commissioned it, so that they won't actually start yeah. diving until the middle of March. No, after, no, after a long indeed, polar yeah. session. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. yeah, but like I say, that that was right in front of the doorstep of the Historisk Museum, so all they literally just had to walk, yeah. like, you know, 50 metres and go in the water and splash about for a bit. Days, if not weeks, after the rest of Europe, the Netherlands has finally launched its coronavirus vaccination programme. First up was Sana El Kadiri, who works in a care home in Boxtel. She was given the vaccination at a mass vaccination centre in Fagel in what Health Minister Hugo de Jonge described as a marvellous moment. Did um, Hugo de Jonge buy a new pair of shoes for this moment? Uh, and I need to know this. I didn't no, check. it was the same shoes he wore when he was uh, uh, he took his oath of office oh. with the king. Yeah, I'm glad he was I, taking it seriously. It was a serious moment. He yeah. he yeah. he did tell no no symbolic moments yeah. in the Netherlands. No, well, no. exactly. Yeah, no, do it's that. absolutely not symbolic to have it. Uh, you know, in front of a <clears throat> in front of a phalanx of cameras and three three ministers clapping when the the need went in the arm. No symbolism yeah. there at all. No, none at all. None at all. I completely agree. I mean, he did say, you know, after 10 months of crisis, we're starting to make an end to it. So uh, you get the full symbolism of it. You know, de Jong has come under such heavy criticism in the last few weeks for the late start to the vaccination programme here. And his strategy has been slammed for being chaotic by opposition MPs. And even he himself admitted this week that uh, the government had not been agile, to use a nice startup phrase, not been mm. agile enough in its approach. Yeah. Uh, so, Robin, you've, you've, we've been following this on Dutch News uh, for what seems like forever. Uh, can you just sum up uh, the answer to the question everyone has been asking, which is why has it taken so long to get started on this? In short, I think it's a combination of being slow to react to events, being over-reliant on systems and giving everyone a say, and also a dose of pig-headedness. Uh, it really dates back to October, November last year, when the government said it would use the current system it has for administering the annual flu vaccination programme to deal with coronavirus. And this would mean that on-the-spot vaccinations would be done at nursing homes and the rest would be administered by GPs. But that was because the Dutch were pinning their hopes on the AstraZeneca vaccine, which does not need to be kept so cold. And so it's less of a logistics nightmare. Then the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine was the first to get the green light. And logistically, that's a whole different ballgame because it's best suited to mass vaccination centres. So the Dutch did that a bit and then started setting up mass centres, one in each of the 25 health boards. And that was the first problem. The second is to do with the IT systems to register what vaccine has been given and who was called up when. And the Dutch healthcare system, as you probably know, is really strongly decentralised. So the systems have to be meshed together. It's been another issue. It's also worth noting that the Dutch government has a long history of getting it wrong when it comes to IT. So <laughs> that delay is not surprising is either. Yeah. When all they have to do is basically open Excel and make a <laughs> spreadsheet. I mean, it's not that difficult to, to have this list and to uh, uh, also um, uh, include what kind of uh, vaccination someone got because they, they said that that apparently was a was a was a was a problem to to keep track of that uh this just does not seem like something that should be a problem to to uh to come up with i think yeah it, it, yeah, it seems to be a recurring theme this that governments um dealing with coronavirus are running into trouble using excel because the, the british government had <laughs> yeah. the same same issue didn't they to back in the wild yeah. but, but where, where they drew up their spreadsheet wrongly and then they found out they were counting the number of um yeah, they're missing a whole lot of cases. I can't remember the details, but uh, yeah. No, they ran out of uh, they ran out of space out of because space, there was a right. limited amount yeah. of uh, uh, rows or columns, yeah. and uh, yeah, they uh, they didn't uh, uh, yeah uh, keep that in mind. 
And the third reason seems to have been a general lack of urgency. Uh, there have been lots of meetings, lots of discussions. Everybody has to have their say, but little action. And of course, when the other countries started vaccinating last month, that brought out a bit of stubbornness in the people involved, I think. Uh, it really seems to me that it was only the tremendous pressure from the hospital chiefs in the last few weeks that have forced De Jonge to speed things up. And, you know, the idea that the Netherlands was being left behind the rest of Europe time is only going to tell really what the score is. I mean, France made a big hullabaloo about starting its programme, but very few people have been vaccinated there. There's a major row about it. There are problems in other countries. So I think it's only going to be a few few months, really, that we realise how many people have been vaccinated and whether the Dutch were right or not to take take their time to get it right, which is, you know, what de Jong's argument has been the whole time. Yeah, he always said uh, he always. Com- yeah, his his argument was always that other countries started earlier, but they were only starting uh, having a symbolic start, right? So um, that seems to be the case for, for example, France, which only has vaccinated, I think, a couple of hundred people uh, currently. But for Germany and for the United Kingdom, for example, this is definitely not the case because they have vaccinated thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Um, what I also, uh, what also might be uh, the problem here, I think, is that the Netherlands is 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 well is doing well in organizing stuff when they when there is uh, time when they can take their time. Uh, but in this crisis, you know, we need to uh, we need to come into action very quickly. And then you 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 see that uh, the Netherlands is not. Um, yeah, uh, they're not doing very well in crisis management because you know you ha- you need people to to take decisions and to and to lead. Uh, and we have this this culture of um, of of, of uh, hearing everyone out and everyone can 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 give uh, their opinion. And uh, in a crisis, that that's not the best approach to to, to handling things. No, it, it, it seems pretty astonishing that at the very beginning, when we knew we would have vaccines, they didn't go, okay, three scenarios, three case studies, yeah. this is how we do it, if this happens, if this happens, and that happens. And that doesn't seem to have been the case, and that's kind of a, a big hole. But we'll, we'll, you know, I think more will come out about it in, in, in days to come and, and months yeah. to come. But Robin, um, can you tell me when I am likely to get my call up? Well, uh, Paul, as a healthy man below the age of 60, you are at the bottom of the pile. Uh, first up, the care home workers like Sana, people working in acute care services and nursing home residents. And once they've been vaccinated, the focus will be on the disabled living at home, people over the age of 60 and starting with the most elderly and the most vulnerable. Officials currently expect it will be late March before the over 60s get a look in, but that's probably will be April. And uh, once they've been vaccinated, the rest of the population like you, you get your turn. And, you know, you mentioned it now, but it really is worth making a point to the fact that acute care workers were not part of the original priority group. But the government changed its mind after so much pressure from the hospital bosses. And then all sorts of other groups started demanding priority too. teachers, police officers, the council wardens. They all started saying, you know, we're priority. We should get the, va- the jack- vaccination first. And now the NOS is reporting that at least 1.1 million doses of the vaccine will not be delivered as quickly as the Dutch vaccination schedule suggests. 
So it did a big <laughs> ring around of the big farmer and says yeah. at least some of the delays were public knowledge before de Jong had published his plans earlier this week. So there's an awful lot of questions still being asked about who's going to get vaccinated when. But generally speaking, I would say that you're you're the last the last in line, Paul. I'm the very last in line, yeah, unfortunately. I, I The debate was, I think it was on Tuesday. Yeah, there was a debate with Hugo de Jong in the Tweede Kamer and he got so much criticism by all these opposition MPs. I almost expected uh, that they would, you know, give up their um, their confidence in him, that they, he, they would send him away. But um, yeah, it's um, would- it's astonishing to me. What what do we need? Uh, uh, how much more do you need to to give up confidence of a, of a minister? I would say, but yeah, I would imagine that that you know the the impact of getting rid of him three week, three months before the election in the middle of a pandemic, uh, the likely consequences of that um, outweighed the need to yeah. give up their confidence in him. But I, I have to say he, he didn't appear to be, uh, you know, being busy with handling the pandemic in the, in the Christmas break because he gave so many interviews in newspapers, in magazines. He was almost, uh, he gave TV interviews almost daily as well. Uh, there was a, a Christmas photo shoot with him. He was playing the piano. He, he biked around in, in Rotterdam, um, uh, pointing out to journalists where his favorite places in Rotterdam are. Um, I mean, did he? What is he doing? <laughs> uh, uh, it, it just astonishes me that that his um, uh, communication advisors allow him to give so many interviews during these in this pandemic, and not not interviews that are about the pandemic, but about you know his personal taste in in in, in chocolate shops and stuff like that in Rotterdam. I mean, it's just whose idea was it to do the like, like the crooning on uh, NOS? Like, oh was- yeah, he all, all yeah he 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 sang three. <laughs> times yeah, on television exactly. in the past three weeks go back to the office i was gonna say don't give up the day job but in his case <laughs> yeah you would you would buy a cd of hugo de jonge i don't know well if, if he gave up the day job you know what i think i might be tempted the government also launched a campaign to encourage people to be vaccinated and is it having any effect it's a bit too early to say but if the campaigns influence people but there certainly does seem to be more willingness to get vaccinated the NOS commissioned Ipsos to carry out a survey, a new survey, and it found that 75% of the population would definitely or probably have the vaccination and 15% would definitely or probably not. And those are better figures than a couple of months ago when the likely acceptance rate was around 69%. Officials do say yeah. that at least 70% of the population needs to be vaccinated to have some level of herd immunity. So, you know, that's looking good. Yeah, and yeah. you would hope that, that that proportion would go up as people are being vaccinated and people's worries about you know side effects or whether it's been rushed through too quickly start to be assuaged because they see that it's not you know people are not getting sick from this vaccination. So, yeah, yeah, yeah at least there's not a downward trend, so that's positive. Yeah, yeah, definitely, it's the right way. Yeah, yeah, I, I have to say, I mean, it's been um, I've been kind of yeah. I don't know if surprise is the right word, but um, I, I didn't expect the Dutch approach to the whole pandemic and the vaccine rollout to be quite so ad hoc, you know, for a country that prides itself on being so good at organising things and planning meticulously. Everything seems to be just done on the hoof. And it's, uh, yeah, it has kind of taken me by surprise uh, to a certain extent. Um, how about you? 
Yeah, no, definitely. I, yeah. I, I'm very surprised by the the lack of contingency planning and the lack of having, you know, three different scenarios to roll out depending on what happens with the vaccines. The fact that they pinned all their hopes on one vaccine being the first when we don't really know what's going on there um, mm. is a very strange thing to have done. But again, again, you know, the Dutch are very decentralised in their approach to healthcare and all sorts of things. So, uh, it, it's sort of it's a natural way. We all have our own way of doing it. We talk, we'll talk together and come up with a kind of general plan how to deal with it. But the yeah. bottom line is is much more, you know, individual responsibility, and that devolves down to the local health boards, which are incredibly powerful, of course. Yeah, that's true. But uh, I guess um, the, the the other element of it is the fact that everything seems to just be left to the last minute, and things are changing. Uh, the whole thing about the start date for the vaccination. I mean, first of all, Dionga said quite firmly it was going to be January the fourth, and then it moved to the eighteenth, and then back to the eleventh, and back again to the sixth. And it was just constantly, you know, it, it was just a mess. And it's not just that as well. Is it things like you know they 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 drew up this um, uh, this sort of staged four point four tier system for lot depending on how they respond to the virus which they've never used you know as soon as they published it it went uh, it was ignored and forgotten and what's um, happened to the app i mean the app yeah, well, so exactly, disappeared they, they promised the in july the app didn't actually appear till october you know it's, it, it's constantly just been it's still running in the background of my phone so i still have it i on. still have it on yeah i still have it yeah but they, they promised two apps initially I, I don't know if you ever got the second one oh, yeah. I, lo- I lost no. track of that <laughs> no <laughs> I never downloaded it, so. So the the rise in cases is your fault, Robin. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes, so you, you are the Hugo de Jonge of this podcast. Yeah, you, you, are, you are the super spreader. I have better shoes. That's a, I'm, I'm pleased to hear I, that. I, I, don't, I have never seen your shoes, but I immediately believe this. Finally, 2020 is over, and that means that the general elections on March 17 is coming closer and closer. The Election Council has said a total of 89 parties have registered for the Tweede Kamer election, uh, beating the previous record of 81. Newcomers include interest parties such as Evert, exclamation point, I don't know what their interest is actually um there's also a party called nuchter nederland which means uh, sober netherlands or down to earth netherlands mm-hmm. i think would be a better translation and also blije burgers happy citizens there's also another newcomer uh partij voor de toekomst for example that's the party that was originally founded by uh, former 50 plus leader Henk Krol and former partij voor de dieren mp Femke Merel van Kote Arissen they initially teamed up with former forum for democracy senator Henk Otte but soon their unlikely coalition collapsed and all three of them went separate ways with their own new party Henk Krol's new party is Lijst Henk Krol and van Kote Arissen's party is called Splinter which is a um, splendid name. yeah yeah Splendid name indeed. I think Henkel needs a new name yeah. because Leist Henkel is, is a too boring name. The collapse of Forum for Democratie also resulted in a couple of new parties, uh, most notably Ja 21, which was founded by former FVD Senator Annabel Nanninga and number three of the FVD candidate list, Joost Eertmans. D- it doesn't necessarily mean that we will see all 89 parties on the ballot paper, which is uh, uh, fortunate because it's already the size of, of a bedsheet. Mm. Parties uh, must admit a list of candidates and other supporting documents before some date in February. And in 2017, 28 parties were listed on the ballot and 13 managed to win one or more of the uh, 150 seats in the Tweede Kamer. Paul, speaking of Forum for Democracy, have they published their new list of candidates? 
they did because, uh, you know, following the FDA soap of November, nearly all candidates resigned or started their own party. Former FVD MP Wiebren van Haga, who switched to FVD, initially was number eight on the candidate list, but on their new list, he got promoted to a second place. Freek Jansen, who is the chairman of the uh, FVD's youth organization and with whom the whole soap started, remained uh, in seventh place uh, on the list. Jansen is the right hand of and confidant of uh, Forum for Democracy leader Thierry Baudet and Janssen was criticized for failing to tackle anti-semitism within the youth wing his number seven position started the row in November so yeah he uh, he remains on on that place a surprising name on the new list was Theo Hidema he initially quit parliament during the FDA row saying he felt politically unfit for work however a week after he announced his return to politics the 76 year old lawyer quit the party for a second time asking to be removed from the candidate list and the reason this time he told NOS was Baudet's populist opposition against the government's coronavirus strategy something he would never have been able to see coming no Baudet's only been uh, banging on about it for a good six months now yeah if if not more. It was very bizarre, the whole Hidemar thing, that he was out of the party and then came back in and he gave this great interview to Volkskrant where, you know, in his usual florid language, he said he couldn't resist Baudet's overtures because Baudet had been coming along yeah. about and tapping on his window uh, on of his apartment every day until he persuaded him to uh, to come back, back into the fold. And then he turned tail again and left. I think part of it might be Baudet's rather bizarre tweets last weekend in which he started ranting about health being a totalitarian issue yeah, and yes. all the things the government can do to keep you healthy and freedom. And I think for somebody who's in their late 70s, as he is, to be told that, you know, the government trying to keep you healthy is, is a bad thing may have rather rankled with him. Yeah, it's quite possibly. Yeah. yeah, there's been a few tweets by Baudet in the last couple of weeks. He also was behaving very strangely during the whole storming of the Capitol, where he started retweeting his uh, tweets where he was supporting Donald Trump, which you kind of think uh, betrays his whole lack of political antennae, really. Yeah, and he also uh, followed that re- retweet. It was a retweet of a tweet yeah. from 2016, I think, and then he followed it with, um, you know, law and order, which is uh, sort of the mantra of Donald Trump himself. Yeah. But he later deleted both the retweet and the law and order tweet yeah. when things really got sour in the capital. So it's always very curious with uh, with Baudet what he's doing and what he's tweeting now. And um, yeah. Yeah, I find it quite instructive. I think it illustrates really, I think, why Wilders has managed to... come back again it looked as if when Forum hit their high point two years ago the the provincial elections that uh, maybe they'd eclipsed uh, Wilders but but in the last kind of year we've seen Wilders come back and Forum die away and you can see really Nukir Wilders was very quiet during the storm in the capital and eventually came out with a statement condemning it I think he's just got much better judgment He, he knows how to pick his op hefts basically and yep. yeah definitely and he's he's really doing his best to distance himself from form for democracy and to present himself you know i can't believe i'm going <laughs> to say this but present himself as the reasonable alternative <laughs> uh, to the populist uh, right-wing uh, voters That's true. and he's benefiting from yeah, it definitely but uh, how are the parties otherwise uh, doing in the polls paul uh, Mark Rutte's VVD party remains the largest party in the poll of polls with an overwhelming 43 seats uh, that would be a win of 10 seats compared to 2017 the VVD is followed by Geert Wilders's PVV party, they currently poll at 21 seats and yeah as I said I think they benefited very very much from the gradual collapse of Forum for Democracy FVD was at some point in 2019 the largest party in the polls and also the largest party uh, in the Senate for example 
people. But Forum for Democracy currently polls at uh, three seats. And yeah, Geert Wilders is really benefiting from that. CDA gained four seats in the polls after replacing Hugo de Jonge with Wopke Hoekstra as their leader. So that's uh, that was a very good move from them. Uh, the Christian Democrats currently poll at 18 seats. Deze sister didn't manage to profit from their new leader. The party is currently stuck at 13 seats, which would mean a loss of six compared to the last election. GroenLinks, the Socialist Party and 50 Plus are also not doing well. And according to uh, the poll of polls, Labour would win five seats and get 14 seats if the elections were held today. But its leader Lodewijk Asscher has come under fire recently within the party and also outside the party over his involvement in the child benefit scandal. So um, yeah, I'm curious to see how that uh, results in, uh, in in the polls for the PvdA. Yeah, that'll be interesting because of course when the child benefit scandal was actually happening, Lodewijk Asscher was deputy prime minister and social affairs minister. So he had a big say in, in, in the policy of the, uh, of the Belastingdienst. Yeah, and the Belastingdienst was acting on the directions of uh, his ministry, yeah. the, the Social Affairs Ministry. So, uh, But he said that um, he wants to continue, even though uh, there is criticism. But th- there is a um, a petition from uh, Labour members that want him out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if that gains traction, I wonder what will happen later. Yeah. The thing that strikes me about these uh, polls, actually, I have to say, is that uh, when you add up the seats for the four coalition parties, I think I'm right in saying they still have just about have a majority, which is quite amazing when we're only three months away from the election that there is still such strong support for the parties in power. Is is that, do you remember that happening before, Paul? No, that never happens. Literally, it never happens. It is uh, thanks to the the ten seat uh, gain from the from the VVD yeah. uh, because uh, uh, from the CDA and the D66 uh, th- they are losing quite a yeah a number of seats. Um, the CDA have almost yeah, recovered now with uh, Hoekstra in charge, and the Christian Uni are doing well too. I mean, they're up to eight yeah. eight, eight uh, notional seats. But you know, it might be eight notional seats, but in terms of percentages, it's still yeah. a tiny amount of support. And it's really easy for us to sort of forget that 43 seats still means less than a third of mm. the people support you because the, it represents 150 seats in Parliament. So, you know, a, a movement of a seat here or a seat there is is percentagely really minute. There's very little support, surprisingly little support for mm. these parties when you think about it. I mean, how many parties are in Parliament now, Paul? Yeah. 13, 15 you know, some of them have got one member. Um, it, it's a, quite absurd, actually, when you think about it, um, how support gets spread and how you, it's very difficult to get a picture. And as, as Gordon says, you have majority support just still for the coalition. And it was only very narrow after the last election, of course, as well. But tiny little movements can make such a difference because of the sort of the way politics is but so they, fractioned. But they, uh, uh, a gain from 30, 30, 33 seats for the VVD to 43, that's not a small percentage. Mm. No, it's a big as 25 percentage gain, but it doesn't mean that they're hugely more popular in the greater scheme of things. I, I always have this discussion with people about the pay yeah. Geert Wilders pay vey vey, and people are going, my God, they've got 21 seats, they're second. And I go, but look, 21 out mm. of 150 yeah. is a really low percentage. So let's not get carried away with the huge amount of support for the far right in this country, because it's always pretty constant yeah. and yeah. pretty yeah, it's low. It's always between 15 and 20 percent, yeah. If you're one of the 89 people left in the Netherlands who doesn't have their own political party, never fear. You can join our exclusive club of Dutch news patrons instead. 
Everyone who sponsors us on Patreon gets a free shout-out by way of thanks, and the chance to ask us a question about the quirks and aggravations of life in the Netherlands. We had quite a few new patrons over the festive season, so we'd like to say thank you to all of you for your support. So um, welcome and thank you to Ishan Bhatt, to Alejandro Morales, uh, to Pravu DC, and to Mark A. Price. Uh, we also say welcome back to Figard Luckness, uh, one of our very first patrons um, who took a break from his studies last year but is now back, and we're delighted to have you on board again. A couple of questions too. Um, one from Noble McFarlane, who sponsored us just before the last episode, uh, but has now been in touch to tell us a bit more about himself. Uh, he lives in Maine with his wife. Uh, he's originally from San Francisco. He describes himself as American by birth, Dutch by nationality, and Scottish in name only. Well, as long as you're Scottish <laughs> in some respects, that's, uh, that's fine by me. He says his Patreon subscription was a Hanukkah gift from his wife. Oh. Uh, I'm sure there must be uh, some clauses in uh, d- divorce law dealing with that, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but let's not get into that right now. Noble says uh, they hope to move to the Netherlands one day and asks us where they should pitch up. So uh, where would you live if, uh, if you were moving here for the first time? The obvious choice is always Amsterdam, but I would avoid Amsterdam at all costs. Sorry, Robin. No, I agree. I, I, you know, if you're just arriving here, it's the worst possible place to try and find somewhere to leave hopeless. Basically, because there is no place left. And if there is a place left, then you need a lot of money to, uh, to get it. I think The Hague is always a nice place. Uh, I'm not sure. No, Robin doesn't like The Hague. Robin's shaking her head. I like living in The Hague. No. Harlem. 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 Harlem's got everything. It's got, you know, sorry, I'm a big Harlem fan. And also Enkhausen. Enkhausen is absolutely charming if you want to live somewhere quite quiet and rural. They come from Maine, so maybe a bit yeah. more of a rural uh, place would be up there, up their street. Then uh, I'd go for Enkhausen. It's fab. There are so many of these nice little places in the Netherlands, such as uh, Enkhausen, but also Zutphen and Deventer is also very nice. These are all very tiny places, uh, uh, but there are they are they are very historical. They're very charming indeed. Um, Volendam, I would uh, not recommend, no. by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Delft. Delft, yeah. I was going to say Leiden as well. Because Leiden is well oh. a nice, uh, nice town. Or maybe just so outside. Very nice. Awful lot of students in Leiden, though. You yeah. know, you might want to avoid them. Yeah, or just outside Leiden, maybe. The thing about Leiden is it's very, it's, it's very handy. You know, it's close to Amsterdam, it's close to The Hague, but it's its own place as well. It's, uh, it's quite lively. Oh, I was going to say that about Delft yeah. because I, I live in Delft and one of the plus sides of Delft is that I walk to the train station and and 10 minutes later I'm in the city center of The Hague or if I go in the other direction in the city center of Rotterdam yeah. I live closer by the city center of these places than many of my friends who live in, actually in Rotterdam or in The Hague mm. I'm faster at, the, at, at in the city center than they are with public transportation so yeah I always recommend Delft uh, as, as one of the one of the nicest places in 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 the country especially because delft has um also this vibe of a of a of a little village uh, especially the city center it's also very relatively quiet yeah, it's and like uh, very charming yeah, indeed it is now i think when yeah. you go there in, in terms of its looks um we've also got a question from uh, tony evans in uh, tilburg uh, who's one of our patrons who talks about um the fireworks and the car fires uh, that uh, there were in the build-up to new year's eve um and uh, wonders why the police were so hesitant to arrest people even when they were throwing rocks or lighting fires well i, I guess we're going to get into this um a bit later on 
when we talk about uh, New Year and uh, the controversy around Down Dock. But uh, yeah, it is a striking thing that the police do kind of tend to be quite non-interventionist uh, when it comes to New Year. Yeah, I don't really have an explanation why the police are so hesitant to arrest people. Uh, I always find it curious, as also when, with the with the U.S. Capitol uh, riots, uh, you have thousands and thousands of people over there, and then they only arrest a handful of people for some reason. But in the Netherlands, that seems to be the case as well. The problem, I think, is that when people are throwing fireworks or setting cars on fire, they work individually. So yeah, they do their thing and then they run away mm. and then the police can't arrest them. I think that's my explanation for I think for this. It's also partly that the, the, the arrests don't get uh, reported. We haven't had the total arrest figures from this year's New Year for example, they always tend to come out in the in the following weeks. And when you get the actual total, you find that, you know, 800, 1,000 people have actually been picked up over the celebrations. But um, it's always oh. it's always quite late that you get the totals. And I saw Amsterdam, five people arrested, and that was in, in Amsterdam New West. That's the only figure I've seen so far, uh, which is kind of odd. But mm. I think it's also partly deliberate. You take a low profile unless things are going to get out of hand because you're dealing with people who've got dangerous weapons if you like in the form of fireworks and who've been drinking and who are out for trouble and so in that sense it 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 might not be the wisest thing to do in terms of law and order but in terms of sort of good policing and protecting the community taking a low profile might be the best way to deal with it if you'd like to become a sponsor of the dutch news podcast for as little as one euro a month log on to patreon.com slash dutch news nl you know, if, if we if we look at Amsterdam and we let's look at you know drunken New Year celebrate celebrants, uh, one thing we didn't have this year, of course, was the New Year tourists, which we normally have, who sort of join in the fun in mm. Amsterdam. Um, that's because of you know coronavirus has stopped tourism. Um, we might all be confined to base at the moment, but the city council is thinking about tourism and in particular how to attract the right sort of tourist. Uh, we've got the wrong sort here. Um, the coronavirus crisis has laid bare how certain areas have become almost totally dependent on low budget tourism. And that's linked with the noise, the nuisance and the locals being chased or, you know, even priced out. And so following calls from tourism experts, businesses, local residents, uh, they're looking to reset the city's reputation for drugs and sex and lost weekends. And they've come up with 88 far-reaching measures, which they hope will ensure after the crisis, the tourists come back and things change. The aim, they say, is to make the area attractive for people to live in and discourage mass tourism. And in particular, they're looking at legal possibilities to ban holiday rentals like Airbnb They're talking about reducing the number of coffee shops where tourists buy cannabis and, of course, closing prostitution windows. Yeah, I just got a push message from the NOS saying that Amsterdam wants to ban uh, foreign tourists uh, out of coffee shops. That's that's been around for a while uh, as a suggestion, and it was reported on last year by a few people, and there's been a lot of pressure from some of the local councillors, uh, the Christian Uni guys been really behind it. Lots of shopkeepers have called for it too. Amsterdam has this peculiar position uh, in the country when they brought in the, the what they call the Ingezetemde Criteria, which means that only people officially resident 
can use the coffee shops, Amsterdam refused to comply. The mayor of Amsterdam then, Eberhard von der Laan, uh, managed to get a kind of exception for Amsterdam and said, we can't do it because of the tourism, because of the nature of how our local economy works. But we will agree in return for you leaving us alone to close down all the coffee shops which are close to schools. So they did. So they closed down quite a few coffee shops which were close to schools. But of course, the bizarre thing is that a lot of coffee shops don't open during the day. So it wasn't really an issue that school kids were going out and getting stoned at lunchtime and then going back to their geography classes. But uh, it's remained a thorn in many politicians' eye, this sort of weird exception for Amsterdam. So if they're finally making a move to keep tourists out of coffee shops, that's a, a big step forward, I would say. As you said, this seemed to have been on the political agenda for years, right? Yes, yes, it has been. I mean, they've been talking about taking steps to reduce tourism for years, but I think it was coronavirus which really brought home to people what it was like. Uh, Amsterdamers were suddenly able to sit outside their houses in the red light district and have a glass of wine in the in the spring sunshine without being surrounded by tourists. And I think that really generated a whole sort of new surge of activity to try and make sure that we didn't have the mass hordes back again. I mean, it's hard to imagine what it's like in the Binnestad, in the red light district, when the mass tourists were there, you couldn't move and it would go on all night long and you'd be clearing up the vomit from your doorstep in the the, you know, the next morning. So I uh, there's been a sort of great new impetus for, for bringing in change. Um, one of the things that they're looking at is going to take a very long time to actually happen if it does. And that's to move most or even all of the red light windows to a sort of specially built Eros centre somewhere else in the city. I mean, it's going to be legally a nightmare to force the brothel owners to close them down or to sell them to the council. There's even talk the council might buy them up. But also other people aren't going to want to have this Eros centre on their doorstep either. So uh, we've kind of got an idea that there's a new outlet centre being built in Halfweg between Amsterdam and uh, Harlem. Very bad timing, but um, to open it now when all the shops are shut. But it's sort of built in sort of mock Amsterdam style in a sort of way. So we thought, well, that's perfect if it doesn't work. They can just yeah. move the red light district there and uh, <laughs> it's all happy. And there's a train station at the front door. So, you know, perfect. <laughs> Everyone will be happy. It's tailor made, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the, the other thing, Robin, is that um, we should say that uh, in amidst all this talk of uh, changing its approach, the city has also given permission to put up a massive giant Ferris wheel next to the Nemo <laughs> Science Centre. So what's all yes, that about? Yes, that kind of snuck in at the end of last year. There were talk. There was talk a few years ago about having a giant Ferris wheel, like the London Eye, for example. Um, and this year it's come back again, or came back at the end of last year. And quite who's behind it? It's a group of museums, certainly. NAMO, the Science Museum and the Maritime Museum seem to be part of the, the idea. And, and they want to place it on the dock, basically, at the end of the red it's, light it's district. It's a Ferris wheel conspiracy it's by museums. <laughs> well, there you have it. Yes. I mean, it's not going to be a hugely ginormous one. I think 36 meters high is what they're talking about, but, um, it's still kind of ironic that at a time when the city council is talking about not letting the city become even more of a fairground attraction that museums <laughs> they're building fairground attractions yeah <laughs> i mean let's not let's face it it's not not happened yet and it's only been given permission by the water board who have said it's not going to interfere with the water so that's that's okay so the council's still got to discuss it and um yeah i'm, I'm not sure where that will actually happen 
2021 arrived with a modest bang compared to previous years, and that was borne out by a sharp drop in the number of firework-related injuries. Safety group Veiligheid NL said 400 people were treated in hospital this year, still quite a lot, but compared to 1,300 at the turn of 2020. Two-thirds of those wounded were under the age of 20, two in five were treated for burns, and three people had to have fingers amputated. Emergency services received 30% fewer call-outs, and insurers reported 6 million euros of claims, which is down from 14 million a year ago. So, all in all, even though there were quite a few uh, fireworks going off um, around the country, it was a much uh, more low-key affair than it has been in previous years. The number of injuries is still too high, given the blanket ban, Feilichheit and El said, but it puts pressure on ministers to make the prohibition permanent. Yeah, and uh, it wasn't a quiet New Year in one corner of The Hague, right? No, uh, there was a protest uh, organised in the suburb of Dandorp, near the beach, which has traditionally held a community bonfire, or Freuchtefeuer, to mark New Year. That was cancelled last year on safety grounds. Because of the fire tornadoes it caused, right? Because of the fire, <laughs> yes, exactly, because they built it far too high, uh, poured diesel on it, and then, surprise, surprise, it uh, set off huge uh, fire tornadoes that ripped um, across the beach. Yeah. So this year, of course, coronavirus meant that there was uh, there was no chance of any kind of uh, community celebration or beach bonfires. And the city's mayor, Jan von Zanen, told the council he was very concerned that the lack of celebrations would uh, lead to street violence and unrest, such as we'd seen the previous year. But he did note that protests are always allowed. So a protest was organised on the Tessel Plain in Downdorp. A protest that involved lights, DJs, dancing, absolutely no observation of social distancing or masks whatsoever, the police nowhere in sight, and lots of families who took their kids along. So, not like any protest I've, I can ever remember taking part in. <laughs> yeah. Van Nassanen existed, as, uh, as, as we said earlier, it was a genuine protest, uh, on the basis that it was registered with the council in advance, and it finished at the agreed time. It just sounds like a Dutch birthday party. It also, always also finishes at a, at a uh, previously determined uh, time, yeah. But, but is everybody satisfied with the mayor's explanation? Of course, of course. Uh, no, in fact, <laughs> almost nobody is. <laughs> um, Omelot Vest, uh, the local broadcaster, spoke to some people who were involved in the decision-making process and established that uh, the, the mayor and the council were all very closely involved in, in, in setting up this event. Uh, the council dropped a few heavy hints to organisers about how to make sure it met the criteria for a protest, such as hang up a banner, and sure enough, there were two sort of quite paltry banners festooning the perimeter of the square during this event. Uh, opposition politicians on the council have taken a different view and tabled questions in the chamber. The leader of the Christian Democrat group, who glories the name of Kavish Partyman, said the event sent out completely the wrong signal, on Twitter, he said, quote, If you kick up a stink for long enough and the council is scared of things getting out of hand, you can have a party. Fanzana's own party, the Fefe Day, are also demanding answers and some MPs uh, want to raise the issue in Parliament. This, of course, is not the first time the seaside suburb has landed a mayor in hot water because Fanzana's predecessor, Paulina Kricker, had to step down in 2019 in the wake of a damning report into that year's beach bonfires. They were built far higher than the regulations permitted and they caused 800,000 euros of damage when the fire tornadoes uh, swept across the boulevard and melted everybody's bicycle tyres. <laughs> yeah, including the police. Yes, yeah. indeed, yeah. So even the police bikes were out of action. They were extraordinary, weren't they? I remember those, uh, the images. I've never seen anything like it. This sort of tower was something out of a sci-fi movie, you know, Lord of the Rings. It was like the Wicker Man. Yeah, it's... the towers and then, and then the, the, the sort of cinders on the, on the cars and everything. It was, uh, it was extraordinary, extraordinary and hardly surprising they stopped them and hardly surprising that Pauline Cricker uh, uh, lost her job over it as well. They're not, not very good, are they? The mayors of The Hague when it comes to New Year. <laughs> 
No, no it's just Dandorp. There's constantly a thorn on their side. It's become a law unto itself, uh, effectively. Yeah, yeah. It's like this infectious abscess uh, hanging on the hay, <laughs> and uh, they're all, always causing troubles. And uh, Dandorp is the mayor killer. Uh, let's uh, let's keep it that way. Um, but the more, <laughs> more extraordinary thing about this bonfire thing was that there was not one bonfire. There were two bonfires on that beach, and they were both too high, and they were both causing fire tornadoes. And yeah, it's uh, it's uh, only logical uh, that they that they banned this because you know it uh, caused too many problems 2020 is finally over so that means we can now enjoy a calm peaceful and uneventful new year no of course we can't as every year 2021 will uh, too be filled with ophef so at least we have something to look forward to the, the ophef of 2020 was almost exclusively corona related of course because of the pandemic yeah and, and this year it looks like it's all going to be uh, exclusively uh, vaccine related yeah so which is also a little bit corona related of course i think we uh, also the the uh, the elections will always cause a lot of ophef as well yes. so uh, yeah we have lots to uh, to look forward to and uh, and there was also update about the Binnenhof saga uh, because uh, the, oh. the government wants uh, the, the Binnenhof to, to move after all even though uh, the Tweede Kamer wants to stay while uh, their parliamentary complex is, uh, is undergoing renovation so lots of ophef to look forward to but in the Christmas break, we had a special episode. Uh, Molly, Gordon, and I discussed the 10 best ophefs of 2020. And at the end, we nominated four ophefs for the uh, prestigious Dutch News Podcast of the Year's Award. Uh, the nominees were Katja Schuurman's Sex Plane, The Pinfortuin Ghost Interview, Mark Rutte's Handshake with RIVM director Jaap van Dissel, and the Wiebren van Haga Seed Stealing Saga. So it's now time to reveal the winner of the Ophef of the Year Award 2020. So um, in fourth place comes the Seed Stealing Saga with 17% of the vote. And I have to admit, I'm a little bit disappointed with that because that was my, uh, that was my <laughs> nominee. In a second, uh, joint second place, we have the Pimfortuin interview and the Rutte van uh, Dissel handshake with 22%. And the winner is the Katja Schuurman sexplain uh, ophef with 39% of the votes. So congratulations to Katja Schuurman and also congratulations to Molly, who absolutely didn't rig this election. No. Uh, I was looking at the uh, at the people who uh, who <laughs> who, uh, who voted, and we have Bolly Quell, I see Lolly Quell, Nolly Quell. So yeah, it's it all seems very genuine, very genuine votes. But we need to recount. Stop the steal. Stop the steal, to- indeed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we need, we're gonna storm Molly's uh, Molly's house now. Exactly. Yeah, uh, I'm, yeah, I will be dressed as a Viking. Yeah, we're, we're going to kidnap Truby and yeah. uh, demand that they recount the votes. Bring your tie ribs. <laughs> So um yeah but who is the winner of the of the special Dutch news mug uh, I have That's a, important as well I will press draw now and let's see You need a drum roll sound effect Yeah <laughs> Valentine Deborah is the winner of the Dutch news uh, mug Valentine Oh that's rigged as well Definitely a rig well? definitely a rig yeah She's somebody we know is it some? Oh, okay. Then uh, <laughs> I'm on the same well, board. Well, no, you can't deny her. I mean, it's a no, Paul no, doesn't know not. her, so uh, I'm no. sure she'll appreciate yeah. it very much. Um, so yeah, congratulations, Visual Mark. Um, it's uh, coming to you. So uh, uh, enjoy it. Um, yeah. So that was the Opeth of the Year, 2020. Right. 
Yeah, so, so so the winner was the first step of the year of 2020. Yeah. Somehow I'm not sure that Sigrid Kark is going to be the no. in contention for the Ophef of the Year this year. But, uh, <laughs> As I know. was writing uh, the Ophef of, of this week, I, I thought, no, this is probably not going to be the best Ophef of no. 2021. Hopefully not, no. otherwise we will have a very boring year. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes, and you can get in touch with us by email at podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also now back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout-out. My thanks to Robin Pascoe and Paul Baters. I'm Gordon Darroch, and we'll be back next week. Thank you.